It is our desire as a church to be taught by the scriptures, not merely the opinions of a pastor or to parrot my opinions of the newspaper, but we want to be taught by the scriptures, which is why our mainstay has become going verse by verse through books of the Bible like we are this morning. And as we've done so, we get to see not just what this verse, the verses in front of us say, but we see the flavor of the whole chapter and the whole couple of chapters together. And we've seen over the past couple of weeks this theme of humility really resonating, really since we entered chapter 18. This has been a prominent theme. To not seek to be the greatest, but to approach God as a little child. Not to be, um, not as the rich man did, but as a broke but as broken men have. Not as seeking rewards, but seeking to enter the kingdom of God merely by his grace. And today, sadly, we discover that the disciples still haven't gotten it. They're still learning their lesson here as Jesus continues to have to preach about humility. And you know what? I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that he has to keep giving them this lesson. Because we have to keep hearing this lesson. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing, it's easy to blame people who lived 2,000 years ago and were first hearing it from Jesus if they didn't get it. But the church has had the word of God for 2,000 years now, and we still don't get it, do we? We still have so much to hear and be taught even by what we've read here just this morning, I believe whole churches, whole denominations even, uh, whole movements of God would do well to pay attention to what Jesus is saying to his disciples. And I pray that us here gathered in South Amboy, we would have ears to hear what God has to speak through the service this morning, through these paid passages of Scripture. But we begin this time together with a, a necessary break in that humility theme that sets us up for a bigger lesson with an important reminder from Jesus in verse 17, where we begin this morning by saying, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This, as you might see in your heading, this is now the third time Jesus has predicted his death. The, the shadow of the cross is looming darker and heavier over the scripture as we get closer and closer to the, to the end of the gospel according to Matthew. And in this, we weren't privy to before at least, you know, going chronologically through Matthew, saying that, that he will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will be the ones who condemn him and then hand them over to the Gentiles who will then mock him, flog him, and crucify him. By the way, that's a lot of data that Jesus is predicting here before the fact. He's giving a chronological order um, there's so and so much detail to it. And let that not be lost to us how profound that is. You know, when you read how the Bible handles predictive prophecy like this, it is shocking when you compare it to so-called other prophets. 
in the world that are not found in Scripture, extra-biblical prophets, you might call them. The most famous of them perhaps being Nostradamus, a name that most of us have at least heard before, even if we haven't heard or read his stuff. Here's a snippet of one of his apparently more recently fulfilled prophecies. It's, he wrote, Earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth will cause tremors around the new city. Two great rocks will war for a long time. Then uh, Arethusa will redden a new river. Anybody have any idea what that means? Anyone want to take a guess what that supposedly fulfilled? People have taken the, his writings from many, many years ago and said, Oh, this is pre- he predicted the fall of the Twin Towers with this prophecy. And you're like, and if you're anything like me, you're like, you're kidding, right? If, if, where on earth did you get that from this? Two rocks warring together, okay, and something about a new city, but earth, what? If, if, that's your, if that's the best that you can that, that you got, what could this not mean? You can make this mean anything if that's how you approach it. It's, it's so vague. And that's normal for extra-biblical prophecy. You don't see details like that in other prophets. But then you juxtapose that with Jesus' prediction here in our scripture before us this morning, where you have a named location of Jerusalem where you have a specific chronological order of events and a time when he will be resurrected from the dead. That's an incredible amount of detail that, again, is very unique to the scriptures. And you have dozens of passages like this all throughout the Old and New Testaments that are detailed and precise and amazing. Like, for instance, just to cite one other, you have Daniel chapter 7, which foretells hundreds of years in advance how world history will unfold. Daniel, writing during the time of the Babylonian Empire, predicted the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, the rise and fall of the Greek Empire, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and talks about an empire yet to come in the last days with amazing specificity. In fact, it's so specific that, you know, modern so-called pseudo-scholars uh, keep saying, oh, Daniel must have been written, you know, hundreds of years after they, people say that they were. There's no way these could have been fulfilled. He, there's no way he could have possibly knew that. So he probably lived closer to the time of Jesus, even though we have translations of his work that date, predate hundreds of years of <laughs> the life of Christ. They ignore that. They want to put on this, this th- th- because they reject the idea that God could have possibly told Daniel all this in years in advance. He, it must have been written later. That's how they get around this stuff. So when you see these weird documentaries and this stuff that comes out on TV about, oh, you can't trust the Bible. Oh, you know, that, that, the book of Daniel came out at, su- at such a later time. They only come to those conclusions because they reject what the Bible plainly says. Sorry, I get passionate about this stuff, I, I, but, but I, I love this because prophecy is God's signature. If, if God alone knows the end from the beginning. He's outside of time. He knows the end before, well before it even happens. He can give you world history in advance, and only God can do that. So, of course, people who don't believe the Bible are going to try to discredit that. But you can't when you look at the data fairly. 
So again, looking at passages like this, we see passages like this all over the New Testament. Let's not take it for granted and see it for the amazing fingerprints of God that they truly are. However, this we must remember, it's not just the amazement of what he's that he is foreshadowing so much as what he is foreshadowing, his death and his resurrection. And the fact that that's what Jesus is foreshadowing here only makes what we read next appear that much more trivial, where we return to our narrative in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, and she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, see that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at the left in your kingdom. (laughs) These two sons, of course, are the apostles James and John, So brave and so confident, hiding behind their mother to ask this request. Oh, gosh. And this question, again, comes across as particularly tone deaf, considering what Jesus was just talking about. You're you're seeking your own prominence after I just said that I was going to die? It really comes across as harsh. And perhaps they misunderstood the 12 thrones that, they, that Jesus had said that they would be sitting on in the kingdom that we talked about in chapter 19. And they, they felt this need to move quickly to secure the best two of them. And look, there's, there's no way to, there's no soft angle on this. This is nothing more than a power play of theirs to attempt to climb the corporate ladder and secure a cushy position for themselves using every possible means to do so. And before we fault them, don't we see that all the time in our own world? I mean, don't, don't we see people trying all over the place to try to get themselves in positions of prominence, taking every opportunity to do so? Let's not pretend that this is foreign to us. Frankly, this happens all the time, even in the church. I heard of One report of one pastor who would apparently go to all of his particular denominational conventions and retreats and what have yous. And in a conniving way, he would always ensure that he was rooming with or next to the top denomination officials so that he can get kind of buddy-buddy with those guys. And so when a position for a bigger church opened up, guess who got the invite? When a position in the denomination opened up with a nice income, guess who got the invite to it? Happens all the time. He's just one example of somebody who was known for it. Are we as Christians, though, supposed to play play games like that for power and position? Well, Jesus answers that by first asking another question in verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Of course they would say that. (laughs) Of course they would say we are able. Classic overconfidence. Uh, Frankly, it sounds an awful lot like Peter who said to Jesus not far after this, no, Jesus, though, though all deny you, I shall never deny you. Till the rooster proved otherwise. Again, we all, see, we all feel confident of what we would do right now, but when we're tested, often we see a different story. 
By the way, this imagery of the cup is all over the New Test, uh, the Old Testament. It, it refers to somebody's divine destiny. Sometimes it's a cup of blessing. Sometimes it's a cup of cursing. It's a cup of wrath. It's a cup of suffering. And the disciples at this point, they could only see the glory. They couldn't see the suffering that they had to endure before them. Because the cup that Jesus would have to drink was one of suffering. Frankly, Jesus, this is the cup that Jesus even prayed would pass from me in the garden. And ironically, the next time the Gospels speak of somebody being to the left and to the right of Jesus, it's when he's hanging from the middle cross. That's the next time somebody's to the left of Jesus and to the right. Something to think about. And Jesus clarifies their exalted self-assessment in verse 23 that goes on to say, he, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and to my left is not mine to grant, but is for those to whom it is prepared for by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at these two brothers. And this was no righteous indignation, by the way. All the other apostles would have done the same thing if they had thought of it first. Every one of them would have done that. I mean, they just got done arguing who was the greatest not that long ago. The same thing was in their own hearts. That's what they were indignant about. However, it is interesting that Jesus' prediction of each of them drinking the cup did come true. You know, later on in the book of Acts, James became the first of the apostles to be martyred for the faith. And the apostle John didn't do so much better. He lived quite a life of suffering. So they did drink that cup, sadly. But the question of who will have prominence in the kingdom is not, well, not for Christ to appoint, but for his father. But as, as we go deeper into this narrative, we see that they were looking in the wrong direction for what greatness looks like. They were operating by a false set of ideas of what true greatness looked like. And Jesus now is going to set the record straight in verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. We'll stop there for a minute before picking up again, but... The disciples were seeking a worldly greatness, greatness in the eyes of the world and the secular culture around them. And a, though their idea of worldly greatness 2,000 years ago is remarkably similar to how we would view it today. You know, there is no end to the stream of modern leadership books and podcasts and online courses that you can take to improve your own greatness and have a better presence and draw people to yourself and all of this in all of this stuff and before i'm heard I, I want you to hear my heart like i'm not necessarily against those things some of them are helpful and you know i've benefited from some of them but many of them have no place in the church Many of them are antithetical to the kingdom of God because so much of it is about making a name for yourself, building your personal brand, drawing the people to yourself. And 
God, it, it gets scary because people start thinking of you however you are, whether this is a marketing scheme or whether this is a business thing. They start viewing you as your own little celebrity. And where that could become really dangerous is when that enters the church. And if the pastor's doing that, and people start viewing the pastor as a celebrity, that's when things get dangerous. Especially if the pastor embraces that, watch out. That church is not going to be healthy. Now, I didn't say the church wasn't going to grow. I just said it wasn't going to be healthy because sadly enough, many of these churches that embrace this personal branding and you know th- this worldly model of greatness, they do grow. They grow fast sometimes. And there are some very large churches that you know ha- have grown because people love to be around such big personalities and the persona of a celebrity among them. But that doesn't mean it's healthy. Frankly, after a church service is over, the last person you should be thinking about is the minister. We're supposed to be thinking about Jesus Christ. That's where our eyes are supposed to be set on. Who he is, what he has done for us, that's what should be on our mind. (laughs) It's interesting because people often forget we get the English word minister from the Latin word for servant. Because in Jesus' kingdom, it's not charisma. It's not intellect or self-assertion that conveys greatness, but serving. Serving is what Jesus is saying. That is the character trait. That is what is honored and exalted in my kingdom. I heard it once said that strong men in the world stand on top of weak men, but in the kingdom of God, strong men bear weak men on their backs. You see the difference. One stands on top of others. Others carry them and keep them safe. Pull them along. It's not about how many people report to you. It's about how many people serve you. It's about how many people you serve. I'm sorry. And this is reflected in Jesus' teaching here. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Servanthood. Putting others' needs before your own, that is what's valued in Jesus' kingdom. Which, funny enough, that's what the very word love means, right? To love someone is to put somebody else, someone else's needs before your own. That's what true love is. It's a choice. In the same way, being this attitude of a servant is choosing to value others and serve them. The root of serving others is love. And how is it interesting when we consider the very fact that our God is love? Scripture tells us. And and diving deeper into this, this word that we use here for servant, its root word is diakonos. Diakonos. Kind of sounds like deacon, doesn't it? Because that's where we get the word deacon from. We get the, de- the word deacon means servant. The title of deacon, therefore, it, it doesn't convey as it's been confused in some churches for power, prestige, or glory, or something to be attained to. Oh, I hope I could become a deacon someday at this church. Well, that, that's, that's not what you would expect from looking at what this word means. Now, it wasn't dishonorable either. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. Please, deacons, don't hit me after service. (laughs) But no, it just wasn't exalted. 
except it was exalted, not by men, but by God. Not by the eyes of the world as something, somebody from the outside of the church would be like, oh, I want to be one of those guys. But no, somebody who Jesus would look upon his church and say, God bless these people. That's the difference. And then he goes up further to say, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And by the way, before we even unpack that, Whenever we see that word in the Bible, we have to immediately remember this is not talking about American slavery. What, what happened in the history of, our, of our, uh, our, our history here in this country, such hard practices weren't even legal in Israel 2,000 years ago or at any point in their history. It was a completely different kind. In fact, this word here for slave it's a very special word that mean, actually means bond servant, which in other places throughout the scripture, it'll actually come right out and say in, in the translation in your pews. Bond servant. A bond servant was someone who willingly placed themselves under their care of their master. Someone who said, I'm not getting better outside of this world. I love this person whom I am serving, and I want to bond myself to them. I want to serve them forever. And they would do it willingly wasn't super frequent, but it happened. And it was somebody who willingly placed himself under the care of their master for life. And funny enough, this is the same Paul, same term Paul uses all throughout his letters, sometimes in the title of his letters. You open up one of the letters from Paul to the churches and you say, it'll say, you know, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. A favorite title he would use. Because that's the title, Jesus exalts. Not his greatness as an authoritative apostle. No, he said, hey, I'm Paul. I'm a slave of Jesus. That's how he viewed himself. And that's how we ought to view ourselves as well. Because the person who submits himself to that degree, to Christ and to serving others, that, that such a person can expect to be exalted in the kingdom of God. And I feel like a major reason why the body of Christ as a whole isn't stronger, especially here in the States, is because we are not willing to be servants of Christ. Now, so many people in the church today, we want to be kings. We want to be exalted on this side of eternity. We want to be prominent before people. We want a podium. We want a stage. We want an audience. We want people to admire us and talk about how good we're doing. That's dangerous. And in this society where everybody wants to be a celebrity or have a podium or a podcast or what have you, we forget about whose kingdom we're here to build. And we picture ourselves often above certain tasks when we do that. Seeing ourselves above things that Jesus himself, hey, was never considered above. But I'll get to that in a few more minutes. I was fortunate to hear a recording of a pastor's conference a number of years ago where um, after the, uh, it was the, the afternoon session, they just got done with the big lunch in this huge uh, cafeteria. They go back to the auditorium for the next session. The speaker approaches the lectern and they begin his talk by saying, some of you guys need to go home. Some of you guys have no business being pastors and you need to go home right now. The whole room was shocked. Suddenly, this crowded auditorium goes quiet. The speaker continued, You guys fashion yourself to be pastors. 
You know that means servants, right? But you guys left the cafeteria looking like that? None of you volunteered to sweep. None of you cleaned up. Some of you didn't even put your dishes away. You guys are in the wrong business. Don't even bother approaching the pulpit this weekend until you at least find out where the vacuum at your church is. Whew. Convicting words. And let me tell you, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. It's, that's, that's a powerful statement, but it's absolutely true. I wasn't even a pastor at the time that I heard that, and it broke me. Because it caused something to shift in my mind. Hold on. Things are different in God's kingdom than the way I, I've seen it presented and I've seen it modeled. I might have went looking for that vacuum at my church at the time. <laughs> I can't help but to wonder if, you know, if you go to our website right now, you can find our church's history. We have it all listed up there. And you see all of these things that we have deemed as valuable and important throughout our history. I can't help but to wonder if God were to put together the history of First Presbyterian South Amboy, what would be his highlights? And how different it might be than ours? Because I have a feeling there would be a lot of different names that are, that are missing and lost to history that will be remembered forever by God. Because let me tell you, I don't know how many of the ministers would make that, that the highlight reel in God's history. And that of any church, not just this one. Got nothing, nothing against half of the guys on the wall over there. I don't know half of them. Most of them. But, but you see the point here that his history is going to look different than ours. I'm wondering if, it, I'm sure that the majority of what his highlight reel would look like is going to be people who labored behind the scenes, not, never seeking recognition, never seeking to make a name for themselves, maybe never having a title in the church at all. But it will be the ones, I wonder if it'll be the ones that of people who just swept after a coffee hour because the room needed sweeping, or picked up trash around the church, cleaned the bathrooms, or those who were told to do something that wasn't in their job description, but they did it anyway just because it was something that needed to be done. People who saw a need within the church and filled it, not needing a title, position, or a committee to tell them to do so. So look, if you want to be great in God's eyes, you want to be great in his kingdom according to his qualifications here, forsake any pride in seeing that you're above any of that stuff. And just come here in the middle of the week and Come in the late afternoon and mop the downstairs. Come in the middle of the week and clean out the bathrooms. And I keep saying middle of the week, late in the afternoon, so that nobody can see it. It'll just be between you and God. That way we find out in our own hearts if we're doing it for, to be seen by others or if we're doing it to be seen by God. Let him reward you because he can reward you far more handsomely than I could or anybody could. And we know that doing such things is right because, I mean, we all intuitively know the value of humility. I once heard a fable of two kings with two equal kingdoms, equal armies, everything was exactly equal. Some of you might have heard me share this before, but uh, the only difference between these two 
kings and these two kingdoms was that at nightfall, the one king retired to his royal chambers while the other king put on peasant clothes and lived among the people. He heard their stories. He felt what they felt. He saw what they saw. He was truly one of them. Now you tell me which of these two kingdoms was greater. I don't need to tell you. We all intuitively know there is, an, there is a power that is unsaid in humility. And that what's beautiful about that fable is not only does it showcase the importance of humility, but it completely describes what Jesus has done for us. Because look, he left the royal chambers of heaven to come and be among us peasants. Being one of us, feeling what we feel, adding humanity to his deity, feeling as a 100% man what we feel and what we go through. Jesus knows what a cold night feels like. Jesus knows what hunger feels like. He has felt all of that, that he didn't need to as a king. But he himself made himself a slave and served humanity. And that's why he is the name above all names. And this is the point of where we're going to have to wrap up today in verse 28 that says, well, I'll back it up to verse 27 for context. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, the, the good news is that Jesus didn't just teach humility. He lived it. Whatever comparison we can make about humbling ourselves and grabbing a mop is nothing compared to what Jesus has done for us. And furthermore, he's never asked anybody in all of the scriptures, in all of the demands Jesus makes among people, never once has he asked somebody to do something he hasn't done for us. He asked the, the, the rich young ruler to forsake his riches. Jesus forsook his riches to come and be with us, forsaking the glories of heaven to be among us, live as a poor man. He calls us to serve one another. And boy, did Jesus, more than anywhere else, when he wrapped that towel among himself and washed the disciples' feet, the task reserved for the, low, the lowest task, reserved for the lowest slave, was what Jesus willingly took while his disciples were fighting about who was the greatest. Jesus is the ultimate example of who we are to follow. And, 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 and before I even go there, that there's, there's this subtle wordplay here between, you know, you have the, the servant, the slave, and then there's what Jesus did for us. Not only embodying servitude, but to give his life as a ransom for many. That, that's at a whole nother level that we cannot simply model. Jesus is our model. Jesus is our example of how we are to base our lives around. But there are some things Jesus did for us that we just have to accept by grace because they go beyond what we are capable of. I'll have to unpack this more next time for time, but Jesus came for far more than just to be an example to us. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, some people want to just say Jesus came to be our example, but it's far more than that. Jesus isn't just a cool person from history for us to be inspired by. 
No, he is the God-man who gave his life on the cross for me and deserves my worship, not just my admiration. Huge difference. But again, we'll have to come back to that next week. But around this idea of servitude, we have to ask the question, have we accepted the title of servant or do I still want to be king? Do I want to continue to fashion myself as a celebrity? And let's face it, that even applies amongst your circle of friends. You could be the popular one. You're the one who gets all the admiration, the one who people look up to. there's, There's somebody like that in every clique. Do we pursue that? Or do we pursue the heart of a servant? Do we pursue the heart of Jesus' heart? Have we taken up our cross to follow him? And maybe some of us need to have a real hard heart assessment about that. Maybe some of us should stick around after service and just spend a few minutes in prayer. I mean, you can do it here in the pews. You can do it in your, park, in, in your car in the parking lot. But don't leave here without asking the question, whose kingdom have I been laboring to build? Which kingdom do I want? What title do I want? Do I want the recognition of the world? Or do I want to hear at the end of my days, well done, good and faithful servant? And to those of you who, by the way, are already quietly serving behind the scenes, you know, God bless you. God bless you for what you do. Now, this isn't meant to make everybody feel guilty. Some of you guys are doing this, and God is exalting you for all the work that you do behind the scenes that I might never become aware of, that we couldn't give a recognition of honor from session because we, couldn't even, we don't even know what you're doing. God bless you for that. Because that's not missed by God. So those of you who are already laboring behind the scenes, helping out with some of the things I've already talked about, sweeping up after coffee hour, cleaning up the sanctuary after everybody leaves, uh, handing out bulletins, just welcoming people, inviting people to church just quietly. God bless you for that. God sees and he will reward you in his time. You know, the idea, an idea came to me late in the week to switch up our next hymn. I'm not going to spring that on Sharon because I care about her too much. But uh, I'm just going to read a couple of words from, a, from another hymn that we could have. So just to supplement the next hymn that we're going to do together. And just let these words sink into your heart. You know this one. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. To that I can't add one more word except but to say, thanks be to God. Amen.